0: Hey, we've got your chance to win tickets to another music festival. Bourbon and Beyond happens September 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th in Louisville, Kentucky at the Highland Festival grounds and features performances from folks like Brandy Carlisle, Train, Buddy Guy, Mavis Staples, The Killers, Duran Duran, Gaslight Anthem, Wayne Newton, The Black Keys, The Black Crows, The Avett Brothers, Old Crow Medicine Show and Spoon, Bruno Mars, Blondie. I need to keep going. There's a whole bunch more. Uh, keep listening for your chance to win tickets and find out more at bourbonandbeyond.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't go to sleep, mom. Don't go to sleep. And Do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, boss? You've half your body sleeping. Uh, I sleep pretty hard.
1: Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it is Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everybody. Body,
0: get involved in the show it's we are the story guys at gmail.com uh okay we got a message from a friend at we are the story guys at gmail.com his name is charles charles writes the show and says hey guys after one of your recent episodes i was looking around at benefit concerts on youtube and i stumbled across a bunch of cool videos from johnny cash playing at Folsom prison and san quentin this then led me to see how many other bands have played prisons i would love to hear an episode on the history good bad and ugly of rock and roll prison performances signed charles
1: hey charles thanks for going deep into being incarcerated and rock and roll it's just (laughs) gonna be awesome we got some stuff for you
0: and and this is a great example of why opening this up to the fans to drive the show is is so valuable because this is a topic for the show i don't think would have occurred to me do you i mean would you have thought of this
1: no, no, not, not at all, because we're always thinking about like, you know, this is on the peripheral of things. We're not thinking about venues, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Is, that's a great point. And, but, it's, but it's deeper than that because we're, we're talking about the human condition and we're right. talking about punishment.
0: Right. We don't get to get existential that often, but this forces an existential question to us, right? Which is, right. is
1: music a human right? Or a privilege, right? And are and are you just is, is prison meant to punish or reform? And and really, for me, you kind of can look at two things and look at the American model. And I can't speak for the rest of Europe, but the Scandinavian model. There's we you know we have private prisons over here. I saw Ice Cube the other day saying like you know the people that run like the record labels own private prisons. And I was like, wow, well, that's kind of heavy thing to say. Wow. But like that doesn't happen in Norway um, for Pete's sake. So is it that like is prison meant to punish or reform? And what if if music is a right? What does that mean? Like, well, how can that be used? And we we can talk about that
0: in- incarceration in general has been around for a very long time. But for purposes of this discussion, I think we I think we'll just stick to the American prison system. I think you're you're good to point out that by country it's going to vary, right? Mm-hmm. We'll talk about the American prison system and we'll talk about the last 100 years or so as our baseline. And if we use those as the guardrails, I think the research points us in a fairly familiar place when talking about the infiltration of music into any space. And that is this idea of music being sacred.
1: Right. So church music makes sense.
0: So you give the prisoners Jesus, right? So it, it, that's that's, that's where you get sort of past the punishment or rehabilitation. You you get to, well, the ultimate rehabilitation comes from the Lord. So, you know, we'll let it in. There, there's a nonprofit called JSTOR that focuses on working with academic research in the digital space. And for the last few years, they've been doing this really cool project where they're archiving prison newspapers from throughout the last hundred years or so, a couple hundred years. Really interesting shit. And there's a particular piece, this is of course is in the show notes, written by a guy named Kevin Crawford as an out- outgrowth of that product, and it pieces together some of the history of music in prison. Will you read the highlighted section from this piece?
1: Yeah, so here's the quote from Crawford. Quote, In the early 20th century, prison uh, administrations were using music to reform the people sentenced to their custody. Rather than remove music to punish the soul, music was seen as a tool to rehabilitate. The music was positive and uplifting, encouraged the betterment of oneself, and frequently revolved around worship services. And in 1898, in reference to a Good Friday Easter service, which included an organ and soprano soloist, Warden Wooldridge of the Connecticut State Prison was said to be a firm believer in the power of music to humanize, uplift, and stimulate the moral delinquents under his charge to something nobler and better. And by golly, that's a guy I want to hug.
0: Have you ever been referred to as a moral delinquent? I feel like that's been said about me at least
1: once. Um, no, but I've had, I've had a, I've had a very old man go, look, son. And that, <laughs> sort of the same thing. Feel, it made me feel like one.
0: Pretty similar. Now it, it doesn't stay church themed forever. The, the Crawford piece will go on to say that quote, as the 20th century passed, music becomes like less ecclesiastical in its mission right. and increasingly just a, a part of secular prison life.
1: Right. And as the letter mentions from Charles really It's Johnny Cash, who's the guy who gets popular performers inside incarceration spaces, right?
0: Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it happens. It's funny because we think about the records, but the records and him going to prisons to perform— are different times completely totally different times and 1958 is when he gets into a prison for the first time but what gets him to do it right that's the question that i didn't know the answer to until i started digging and for that answer we have to talk about another person that you probably never heard this name before and the name is crane wilbur have you ever heard that name
1: um, no, just for the purposes of this, that's it. A writer, actor, director, born in
0: the late 1800s. He's going to enter filmmaking at this really unique time in film history where it puts him in the overlap between silent film and, and talking films, right? He becomes most notable for his acting in a particular serial that we've all forgotten. But by the end of his career, he's writing and producing. Now, there's some stuff you've heard of. I don't know if you remember the, the Paris Hilton remake of House of Wax, that was actually based on a 1950 script uh, that came out, I believe, in 53, the original House of Wax. He wrote that in the early 50s. That was him. But throughout his career, he was often in game for, for sort of pushing the envelope with the topics that he put on screen. And sometimes it was a little bit sensational. He worked on B-movies that featured storylines. This is real. In the 40s and 50s, storylines about teen pregnancy, human smuggling, and forced sterilization. Wow, it's like Ed Wood, maybe. (laughs) Right, well, maybe. And and he made quite a few movies about prison. Because you're going, why are you bringing this guy up? This is why. One of these in particular was a 1951 movie called Inside the Walls of Folsom Prison. And this movie was set in the 1920s, and it struggles with the same question that we've already talked about, right? The one you brought up right out of the gate. Is prison a place for punishment or for rehabilitation? And guess who sees this movie when he's in the Air Force?
1: Yeah, and that's Johnny Cash. And so he writes a song about it. And have you ever heard the anecdote about how he came up with the, um, the line, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die? No,
0: quintessential line, though. How's he yeah. come up so, with it?
1: This is why Johnny Cash has a wallet that says "Bad Motherfucker" on it. <laughs> He's, he, he was quoted in saying that quote. This is Johnny Cash, and this is awesome. I sat with my pen in my hand, trying to think of the worst reason a person could have for killing another person, and that's what came to mind. That is rock mm-hmm. and roll as shit. What a yeah.
0: quote, man! Uh, and and you know he isn't a performer yet. When he does this, right? He's a dude in the Air Force with a cheap guitar. So when he puts this song together, he isn't trying to write a song he's going to perform at Folsom Prison one day. He's trying to put words and feelings that he has about this movie he saw to a tune. And so he takes a tune that already exists. He takes a tune from a guy named Gordon Jenkins, who wrote a song called Crescent City Blues, performed by his wife Beverly Marr on a 1953 album called Seven Dreams.
1: I hear the train a-comin', it's rollin' round the bend, and I ain't been kissed, Lord, since I don't know when, the boys in Crescent City don't seem to know I'm here. And there, I mean, there's no real new songs, right? We're going to talk about Sam Phillips, right? That's yeah, well. Like, right now?
0: Yes. So this is the great thing, right? So he isn't thinking about this necessarily as something that is going to be a Johnny Cash song later, right? He's just writing something. But when he gets into the studio, fast forward a few years with Sam Phillips, he shows him this song. And Sam Phillips likes it, wants to record it. And Johnny says, wait, man, this is not my song, really. This is actually a song called Crescent City Blues. And Phillips tells him, I don't worry about it. It'll be fine. And we don't have to credit it. Nobody's going to come after you for this. Uh, Turns out they didn't realize how big this song was going to get. And so uh, Mr. Jenkins definitely comes after Mr. Cash after this hits the big time in the 70s. And I don't know the exact number. But from what I've looked around, it seems like seventy thousand dollars in 1970s money or so that he has to pay uh, Jenkins off to own this song now, because he is like it, it it is it is that song. He just changed the words.
1: And this is risky business for Sam Phillips. He had a legal run-in really early on with Sun, and if you go to the Sun Studio tour in Memphis, they talk about this in the tour. And they play both songs. So you hear Hound Dog, you hear Big Mama Thornton, and you hear the answer song, which is, You Ain't Nothing But a, bear a cat. And then, <laughs> I mean, think about, and, you know, think about if what would have happened if Sam had went bankrupt? What would have happened to popular music? Anyway, I just wanted to. Well, and there's, put that in there's no yeah. template
0: at this point for him, right? So, like. Right. It's not like he has all of this precedence to look back on and say, this is how we operate in the music business. He's sort of writing the playbook as he goes. So I don't fault him as much for it. But also, listen, if somebody's written a song, don't just
1: straight up let artists steal it. Come up with some sort of arrangement. I I think he kind of did a little of that. But here's the amazing thing. okay, so so Johnny Cash goes to Sun, which you can go to the, the tour and you can go stand on the X where he did this. And he didn't have a drummer for the session, so next time you listen to that song and you hear the snare drum, it's not a snare drum. It's a piece of paper under the guitar strings. What? That is really? 100% the freaking truth.
0: That's, uh, that's unbelievable. And it, I mean, here's the thing. It's not even the originality of the song's melody or structure that's going to make it remarkable, right? It doesn't matter that he stole this no. song, because right. what matters is he changed it from being about Crescent City to being about a prison. And... This is new territory. People in prison don't get to hear songs about being in prison that often. And he creates this audience, sort of by accident. He starts getting letters, he starts getting requests, and then he puts together this opportunity in 1958, just a few years after the song blows, you know, and goes out in into normal rotation. He goes into a prison for the first time and plays a concert.
1: And like we mentioned earlier, for the timeline for everybody, since most of us, I'm thinking a lot of us, weren't born at this time. these So this concert, he's going into prison at 58. The records didn't come out for a whole decade afterwards. And that's when they became like sort of smash, like cultural smashes. But the concerts in prisons actually, like when they start in the 50s, the Statler brothers open up. Who were Damn. kind of a gospel group. Yeah. And they went pop country and their most kind of known for flowers on the wall when Bruce Willis is in Pulp Fiction and he runs over Marcellus Wallace when they're at the, like that's where that comes from. And so on stage cash would have June Carter. And initially it was the Tennessee two. So that was Luther Perkins who is not even related to Carl, Carl Perkins. (laughs) And I've thought he was my entire life. And W.S. Fluke Holland, who you and I met on our podcast years ago, we just had to plug the countertop that he had to deal with.
0: It was so weird. It was one of the
1: greatest moments of our our
0: friendship and our podcasting history.
1: Yeah. So they added a bassist named Marshall Grant. And then Carl Perkins, not related to Luther, (laughs) sat in on guitar. Unbelievable. And the first attempt the show was at san quentin so a lot of people might think that folsom prison was the first one but san quentin actually was the first right one. right right and it's super important because of who was in that audience and who was a prisoner a bank right? robber
0: a bank robber named merle
1: yeah, and I adore Merle, and the hag deserves his own episode as an unbelievable, important fixture in, in country music and being just a badass. But it's all remarkable, and I remember the first time I heard this, too, there's this quote. I don't know if you've seen this. It's from 2016, so it's, it was very late in, in Merle's life, and this is a quote from him. He, he said, quote, I didn't care for his music before that. I thought it was all corny but he had the crowd right in the palm of his hand, end quote. I mean, Merle always being honest. We've seen the footage. We've heard
0: the songs. It is electric when he walks in these rooms. He connects with these guys. And part of it is there is this outlaw spirit, right? There's a reason they call this period outlaw country. I mean, Merle Haggard was a bank robber. Real stuff. Uh, They're actual outlaws. And and Johnny's on his way, right? He's, He's getting close to becoming an outlaw. And this is probably worth a subsequent episode as well. But in that decade between the performing and the recording, his personal life starts to go completely off the rails. I know a lot of people have probably seen Walk the Line, so you get a little bit of a taste of this. But he starts spending a few nights in incarceration himself.
1: Right. Um, and, I mean, there's tons of stuff about it. His, his autobiography, by the way, I picked up in paperback one time in an airport, and I nailed that thing in that trip. you talk about Man so in Black? Easier. Yeah, it's just so yeah. easy to read. Yeah, so he starts a forest fire. He wrecks a car <laughs> while he's messed up on pills. It's it's. And-
0: I mean, we shouldn't laugh about this, but like when you put it in a list, it's hard not to laugh at it.
1: Yeah, right. And so he described in there about taking speed. You know, like methamphetamine. What? Well, not methamphetamine. But just speed. Um, that it made him feel like his skin was crawling oh apart, God. like from the inside. Yikes! So, but you mentioned electric. And there is something unbelievably just crazy powerful and electric AF about Johnny Cash singing cocaine blues to the inmates in either one of these prisons and how loud that crowd gets. It's like, ah, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. like he's singing about something he's probably not supposed to be singing about. Yeah. Those people. Well, right? you, OK, so you
0: already mentioned this idea of what if Sam Phillips had gotten sued and didn't break Elvis and Johnny Cash, right? Here's another moment if these prison shows don't happen, do we get Johnny cash? Because That's a great question. I, I don't know that we do see like from a career management perspective, Johnny cash as a prison performer makes him the star that he is today. This is one of the most defining things about him. And I think he fades away a little bit like Carl Perkins or even Jerry Lee Lewis, where, yeah, they're important, but they're not as, Im- they're important from a historical perspective. They don't have a career that lasts all the way until I and then college, literally going out and buying Johnny Cash records because he's playing Trent Reznor songs on an acoustic guitar. You know what I mean? Like this right. extreme relevance that, that he continues. He's not yeah. a, a, a casino act, right? Even all the you way know, up to his death. He's putting out pretty vibrant records that people are interested in. And it is attributable to the revitalization of his career around the prison shows.
1: Yeah. And post-prison, I mean – he he got a television show, which, by the it's way, wild, super fascinating to to watch um, like on TV. So his success is why prison shows continue to happen for decades. And it leads us to talk about many of the other folks that will take on the mode of performance and carry it in the future. Before we get into the stories of other performers, this is important. Do you know about the Johnny Cash, Glenn Shirley story?
0: Uh, fill us in.
1: So. The night before the Folsom show, the chaplain at the prison. Oh, this guy. Is, yeah, he pulls Johnny aside and gives him a recording of a guy who's in Folsom prison for an arm robbery. And he's got a song, and it's called The Greystone Chapel. And Cash decides to learn it and then sticks it in the set list. So, Holy right, shit. Right.
0: Can you imagine? So
1: that, right, right. So it gets captured on the Folsom record. And suddenly, Shirley is a known songwriter entity. Eddie Arnold ends up recording one of his songs, oh my which is God. amazing. And then he gets his own prison concert while he is in prison. <laughs> and so Cash gets his own imprint, like he's a super indie rocker, like you know, it's like Sonic Youth or whatever. I didn't know and, I didn't know artists got imprints this early in music history. I really didn't until yeah. I read this. And so the story, and I don't know, this is seems like it could be far-fetched, but God, it's great if it's true, is that Johnny Cash meets him at the gates and hands him a recording contract as he's getting released, a la Blues Brothers, Jake oh my and Elwood, getting out of
0: Holy now. shit. That, I mean, what an amazing story. Can you imagine being an inmate who comes in and Johnny Cash starts playing your song? A song that you yeah. wrote?
1: Unbelievable. Yeah. The, the, sad, the sad part is that um, Surely can't handle this this new scene, and he he yeah, gets kicked out tough, of that man. inner circle, and he he dies in obscurity or whatever. But the story is pretty amazing. But the ride he takes is pretty remarkable.
0: So Cash gets the credit for really starting the prison performance trend because of the '68 album. But between his '58 performance and his '68 recording, people are starting to catch on that this this is a thing that you can do, right? And the Rat Pack of all groups get in on this idea of going to prison. Sammy Davis Jr. actually does Folsom before Johnny Cash. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you do that. Uh, but Frank Sinatra plays a prison and takes Count Basie and his whole goddamn orchestra with him.
1: Oh, yeah. It's my favorite story about prison performances, and we'll mention it later.
0: So do you know, though, that there is this moment, another sort of sliding doors moment, where it looks like Frank Sinatra is actually going to beat Johnny Cash to the punch. There's plans for a, six, a 1965 Frank Sinatra live from prison record that never ends up seeing the light of day. And what would have happened if he had gotten the jump on Johnny Cash?
1: I, I wonder, because if you for me, like the genres are different. I know, but is there a novelty to what Cash was doing?
0: Was that why people were interested in it? I don't know. I mean, I... <laughs> But there aren't a lot of, until those Johnny Cash records in the late 60s, there aren't a lot of prison records. Then that becomes sort of the thing. If you're going to go to prison, you're going to record it. So there's quite a few that we'll talk about that then come after this. But being the first is a big deal, right? I mean, we talk about that in the world of business all the time. Like be, right. you got to be the first. And so sometimes you, 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 know, you move quick and you break stuff so you can be, you can be quick on it. Um, I don't know. It's really interesting. So speaking of others who are going to start playing music inside prisons after Cash makes it to the mainstream, The list is long and legendary, but I'm going to attempt sort of to guide us somewhat sequentially and somewhat by significance, and if we do that, I think the next person we got to talk about is B.B. King. Have you ever seen B.B. King in concert?
1: In person once, yes. I've been to
0: B.B. King's in Memphis, but I have not seen B.B. King in concert.
1: Yeah. And he, so, but, but he did a show in 71. It gets yeah. recorded and becomes the Live in Cook County Jail, which has the best name. Have you ever seen the Sing Sing Thanksgiving? You ever seen that? I, so
0: it, it that's the 1972 concert film, right? With BB and Joan Baez and
1: Joan Baez at Sing Sing. And like, like Joan
0: the, Baez's sister.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a great combination because it's totally weird. You know, it's considered to be, You know, by critics to be B.B. King's best performance ever. And it's a great compliment to what Johnny Cash was doing. And it really says a lot about B.B. King. There's this scene in Rattle and Hum where him and the Edge are sitting there talking and and you get this very naked moment where B.B. King says he can't play any chords. Has no idea how to do them. Really? Uh, and then, yeah, yeah. And then he says something like, you know, there's no new songs. Like, you know, there's just, there's so many songs and you just have to find the things you want and borrow the things that you want from it, which is an w- amazing thing to hear him say. And I wanted to be like, I want to be in a band with BB King. I don't know how to do anything but play for <laughs> I was going to say, I think we'd make a great compliment. BB,
0: yeah. Brian, and, and Murdoch. Uh, right. So, you know, this gets us to an important component of this conversation, which is what are the other other motivations besides possible commercial success that Johnny finds that you would go into a prison to play music. And you've got to think about the timing of all this, right? June of 1971 is Nixon's declaration officially in the press of quote, the war on drugs. And obviously we have seen how that has played out in the 50 years since this happened, but even at the beginning, there was some distrust and unrest around what these policies were going to do for Black communities.
1: Yeah, and uh, some of you might be familiar with this quote. It's from John er- Ehrlichman. Is that he says yep, last yep, name? Yep. Um, it's from '94, so he was a Nixon aide. So uh, this is important. Uh, so quote: the Nixon campaign in '68, and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies: the anti-war left and Black people. You know what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we would disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did, end quote. So if
0: you're a musician— it's up to you to sort of be the counterculture, right? And and now you have this political reason to justify a performance behind bars, and it doesn't hurt if you're able to follow Johnny Cash's template there and also be very commercially successful and reap critical acclaim. I mean, they consider those Johnny Cash records popularly considered to be the best Johnny Cash records.
1: Yeah, and that's, I mean, it's funny that there's, of all the things, it's interesting that that's how his his big payday is, is from those things. But when BB King goes on stage at Sing Sing, that gig with with Joan Baez, he says this quote: "I was told some of you dudes don't know anything about blues, so I want to say this to you. I came to swap some with you. I imagine quite a few of you dudes have the blues already." End quote.
0: All right, can we just appreciate the idea of BB King saying, "You dudes"? Like I just yeah,
1: it's, yeah it
0: sounds fun just to say. I love it. So let's take a minute and return to a band that we have talked about fairly recently on the show, The Grateful Dead. And I have a deadhead quiz question for you. Do do you know who Owsley Bear Stanley is?
1: Yeah, that's the sound guy and the guy who had all the acid. <laughs> Basically, yeah. Shout out to the Dead, by the way, the Dead and Company. They played their last gig apparently forever in San Francisco real recently. So he was legit. One of
0: the largest suppliers of LSD in the world, right? During he the late sixties,
1: he was the acid guy, and <laughs> Bear just also happened
0: to be incarcerated at the Terminal Island Correctional Facility when the Dead showed up to play a free concert for the inmates there, August fourth of nineteen seventy-one. I don't know how that works out, but it did.
1: Bourbon and this September in Louisville, Kentucky, with Bruno Mars, don't believe me, just mine. The Killers. Black Keys, Brandi Carlisle, plus Duran Duran, Billy Strigs, Black Crows, the Avett Brothers, Blondie, and so many more. Bourbon and Beyond, September 14th through 17th in Louisville, Kentucky. All passes on sale now at bourbonandbeyond.com.
0: Let's talk about punk rock. You want to talk about the punk rock component of this?
1: Fuck yes, I do. There's There's some of this we have to tell people about. Absolutely.
0: There is something on paper that seems quite counterintuitive about letting the sex pistols or the cramps play at your prison. That doesn't seem like they would be on the short list for any of this.
1: Yeah. And one of these obvious one of these actually works out much better than the other. And you might be surprised. (laughs) The sex pistol story is legendary. The show is at the uh, Chelmsford top security prison in England. And they have Dave Goodman who did demos with him. And was their live sound engineer there and he's recording it, but he fucks everything up, like all their live recordings <laughs> like everything
0: awful. they did. Nothing it, it, I feel like. Yeah,
1: if you don't fuck
0: it up, then it's not a sex pistol show. Like a non yeah. fucked up sex pistol show is is fucked up.
1: But in like 96, when they got back together, I was like, yeah, this sounds good and is mixed well. But anyway, he <laughs> screws it up. Ma- Glenn Matlock's bass is not on the recording at all. So he has to go back and dub sounds in any way. And then it goes overboard and it sounds like crap.
0: Well, I, I guess what can be assumed is that the prison guards are on standby for this because they know what they've gotten themselves into. And so. The crowd is actually pretty under control, especially given how typical non-incarcerated crowds are for the Sex Pistols. And so, I think the audio is sort of tame. So when Dave goes into this audio, he just edits in sound effects of a riot happening.
1: <laughs> like yeah, it's like it's like a kiss, like a Kiss live record where and, they just add the audience. And, and he makes a fake
0: sound. Johnny Rotten. He has a yes. fake Johnny Rotten saying awful things to the audience that he didn't actually say.
1: Yeah, and it's terrible. But there's a eventual there's there's reissues that have given us the original recordings without Matlock, but the original release it's just kind of an interesting thing. But it is batshit crazy. The Cramp story is much better. Well, they,
0: well partly because they play a psychiatric hospital.
1: Now that's correct.
0: I read up on this. Now it is, I believe it still exists, and it's mostly used for criminal psychiatric cases. But at the time. It wasn't heavily criminal. It was mostly psychiatric. And so it was like maybe 20% were violent. The rest of them were just in there for different reasons. Vice published this piece back in 2015 by this guy named Phil Barber. And this dude, his whole setup for the piece was, I I mean, I'm sure he pitched Vice to do this. He lived next to the place and he drove by it every day. And he says, I have all these questions and I want to like, I, I just This is the one thing I know about it, right? It's like us. Like, let me explore the rock and roll bedtime story behind all this. So he goes and takes a site tour in the present day. Let me just read you an excerpt here. Uh, the courtyard is small and probably small, if you know its history. And the stage isn't really a stage. It's just an elevated concrete patio that's maybe 10 feet deep and 30 feet wide. And it was here on June thirteenth, nineteen 1978, that the Cramps and the Mutants played a punk show at a mental institution. This was a performance seen by almost no one, about a dozen devoted punkers who drove up with the bands and perhaps 100 or 200 patients, plus a scattering of hospital staff. Now, if you know anything about this, you know about the video. Have you seen this video?
1: Yeah, and I saw it so long ago. It was like a shocking, weird thing as a young person, and then watching it now in the context, it's like, oh, it's interesting. Well, it's one of those things
0: where if you just say... I've got this video of this punk band playing in a mental hospital. Like, sounds scary, but it's like not really. But what happens is they take this video crew with them. I think they call themselves Target Video, and they have like 20 minutes of just raw video of this show happening. And but you know, with that said, how did this? Like, there's a question here.
1: Yeah, Um, who the hell booked this fucking show at a mental (laughs) hospital, right? Like, who decided to do this? Uh, There's a person. He's
0: got a name. His name is Bart Swain. Uh, He's hired as the activities director, and he gets a call from a guy who's big in the punk scene in the Bay Area named Howie Klein. Howie Klein goes on to work in the record industry, so you might know that name. Yep. Klein tells him, I got this new group, and there's this, like, electro new wave band that I want to just bring through and they'll play for free and you know Swain I get the impression is always looking for for something and he also wants to vary the types of entertainment I read in passing that at one point he had Van Morrison's daughter perform I don't know even know what that means yeah uh, but when the day of the show comes this rando new wave band doesn't show up instead on the doorsteps of the mental institution with their gear are the cramps and the mutants
1: Yes. So why did well, this happen? That's Brian?
0: the best. That's the best part of this story in Vice is that he asks Howie Klein and Howie Klein doesn't remember. He's <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm sure I was just going with the flow, adjusting and, on the fly.
1: And and really, aren't some of the best things that ever happen in life are just freaking accidents. <laughs>
0: So Swain says that he almost had to stop the show before it started, but not for the reason you think. It goes all back to this video component. Think about this. Are you supposed to be running a video camera at a place like that?
1: No, you shouldn't. It's private medical information. Right. It shouldn't be showing. So he walks out
0: and he freaks out because there's these people video. And clearly they're turning the camera, not just on the band, but on the audience and capturing both sides of the experience. And so he's like ready to stop it. But he realized he hasn't worked there for very long. And his boss is there with him. And he's like, oh, this is above my pay grade. So if my boss makes it stop, fine. But otherwise, I'm just going to let it ride. And so that's what he does. This is a quote from the videographer. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing, says Jill Hoffman Cowell of Target Video. What we did for those people was liberating. And they had so much fun. They pretended they were singing, they were jumping on stage, it was a couple hours of total freedom, and they didn't judge the band, and the band didn't judge them.
1: Yeah, and now looking in the rearview mirror, and what Johnny Cash really made famous is something to where, imagine being incarcerated, it's humanizing these people, it's really about giving them things that they aren't, they're completely neglected from having and music really, obviously you listen to this podcast because you love music and everything about it. It's like, it's things that speak to your soul and that is all involved in here. And if you're incarcerated, you need to have that like connection. You probably don't have it. But anyway, getting back to the amount of people that Johnny Cash inspired is very lengthy like johnny john lee hooker Freddie fender fugazi well it, carlo fugazi
0: fugazi right let's pause there for a second fugazi incredibly left-leaning band so not right. surprising that they would take the prison system on by performing within it this happens in what like christmas of 90 i think is when this happens and they go in and uh give this audience that's like not prepared for them like first of all fugazi was a pretty confounding band even if you were a fan (laughs) you know know, we've never talked about fugazi on the show before but uh you know they weren't out to be commercial and so to take a band like that and put them i mean this is on the same par with like putting the cramps on stage right like you don't you don't really know exactly what you're going to get so everybody's just sort of there but excited that they have a band and so fugazi gets to do this and You do get to see it, I believe. And and there's a documentary where you get to see part of this performance.
1: But the best thing ever, and Brian mentioned it earlier, which was an album that could have come out before Johnny Cash's and been the record that was first, was Frank Sinatra and the Count Basie band performing... For 3,000 female inmates at the Lorton Reformatory <laughs> in 1965. Those were the inmates uh, that Blue Eyes and Count Basie was performing for. And all of this really revolves around the man in black uh, not having a drummer and having that piece of paper underneath the guitar. And, and trying to think of, like, the meanest way to kill a guy.
0: You, you know, there, there is one particular show that we didn't talk about that i feel like we have to talk about um no one's gonna let you off the hook to not talk about metallica
1: yeah yeah i mean you know for me it was kind of obvious and i was like ah do we need to talk about this like i found so they shot the saint anger video um at at the prison And then they did a show there. And then James made a, you know, James made us like James is in recovery and made a speech. And he was he was very moved by the experience himself and his connection to it feels completely different. Like it's to me, it's the opposite of Johnny Cash getting up and singing cocaine blues in front of people. Like there's something that's like rowdy about it. And there's something that really like you wouldn't think that with Metallica, there's something healing about it, but that had to be a really important performance for, for James Hetfield specifically to play, um, is San Quentin. Is that right? I think. It yeah, was, no, it was San Quentin. And so,
0: and this was yeah. later, right? So this is like, Oh three. And this, yeah, 2003. So here's a here's a crazy connection to an old, uh, episode though. So we did an episode about ACDC and the night stalker way back in the archives. If you've never heard that, right? so, at San Quentin at the time is Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, but he's on death row and he doesn't get to go to the show because death row inmates. I don't know if this is just San Quentin rule or everybody's rule. Death death row inmates you 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 don't get tickets. <laughs> you, <laughs> they they cut you out of the lottery, and so there is uh, there is actually a conversation that Kirk Hammett had where he said he he got word that Richard Ramirez. Was a fan of the band and was pissed that he was not able to go to the show. Um, he he did an interview with NME uh, and they, they asked him like who's who's the most you know like the person you never thought was, would be a Metallica fan. Those Metallica fan. And this is who he mentioned when we played San Quentin prison, he was on death row and could hear us. The guards who were responsible for watching him said that he was pissed off and pacing his cell because he wasn't allowed to see us. He gave the guards his subscription copy of a magazine with us on the cover and on the mail tag, it said Richard Ramirez San Quentin prison. So that's my little token from Richard Ramirez, not to glorify the guy. He did some horrible crimes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah,
0: he's a monster, but also he likes my band.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, but all I can think about is, uh, luck be a lady tonight with 3000 female <laughs> inmates in stripes, watching Sinatra, like real slender, great looking oh. Sinatra in the sixties. That's what I think. About.
0: Uh, I mean, it is, it is funny. And the idea of taking that many musicians and to do anything is funny.
1: Uh, Oh yeah. The count Basie orchestra for sure. Charles, Thank you for this letter.
0: If you want to get involved in the show, if you have a question to ask us like Charles did, it's easy. You can just send us a note at wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. You can check out uh, everything else we got going on at wearethestoryguys.com. And Facebook, look up The Story Guys. Instagram, look up Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. And Patreon, that's a place where you get extra content stuff maybe that we cut from the shows and remember this is all retroactive so if you go and uh, join the patreon at five or ten bucks a month you can just grab everything that's back there um our old playlist episodes our old newsletters and everything that comes out um after you know now so uh thank you for all your support for those who do that make sure you're checking out our ticket contest you now have a chance to go to bourbon and beyond happening in september in louisville kentucky featuring acts like duran duran blondie and the killers and we've got tickets for you so go sign up for that find those links in the show notes
1: and whoa,
0: after all that murdoch yeah. what should people keep
1: doing stay out of jail and keep telling stories <laughs> Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.